Good morning, Pursuit. Let's pray this morning wherever you are. Uh, let's get our hearts, our minds focused on God's word after that amazing worship. And let's just believe together that God is about to speak to his people. Let's pray. Father God, I just come before you, Lord. Father, I truly, just in every way that I can, I humble myself, God, just under your mighty hand, under your strength and under your power. Father, you are the only one who is truly good. God, you're the only one with the power and the insight and the knowledge, Father, of the future. God, to be able to lead us through this life, God, and carry the burdens that pile up so heavy on us, God. So, Father, I just come before you, uh, Lord, just as, as uh, the head of this house, God, as the pastor and the shepherd of this, this part of your body, God. And I pray that all of us, Lord, would just come before you. Father, we cast the anxieties of our life upon you, God, the, the cares of this world, the burdens of this world, Father, the things that we don't understand most specifically this morning. Father God, I just come before you and I pray, Lord, that you will take all of the burden, all of the anxiety this morning, God, because I know, Father, and we know as a people, Lord, that it's your power, that it's your truth, that it's your word, that it's you, God, for your glory and your honor, for your ways and your will, God. We submit to you in everything, God, and I beg of you, Lord, move. Just let a power rest on me today. Just let every word be from heaven, God. Let every word be from heaven, Father. Change our lives in your holy, holy name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to have a ton of scripture today. Uh, some of it uh, I may quote a little bit or I may just refer to, uh, but you can go back and look up all of it. But the main one this morning that we'll get to in a little bit later is going to be out of Mark 14, verse 35. It's Mark 14, verse 35. So all of the front row students, if you want to go ahead and make that note or flip there in the Bible, you can hang out. Uh, but while you're getting situated wherever you are, um, I want to tell you about a little bit of time in my life when I was younger. Now, I don't know how everybody did things when they were kids, and I don't know like what's weird and what's not. That's the thing about growing up as a kid, is whatever is normal to you is normal to you, and you don't find out it's weird until you get around other people, and you're like, oh, wait, I'm the only one that does that. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a moment to be vulnerable and tell you a little bit about my make-believe part of my life when I was a kid. And I don't know when you started or stopped playing make-believe, and maybe you never did. I don't know. I, I think now with the younger generation, you don't really have to play make-believe because you got video games and you really don't have a reason to ever leave your house. But it really wasn't like that when I was a kid. And when, especially during the three or four years that I lived with my grandmother in South Carolina, uh, going outside and playing pretend, as, as funny as it feels saying now, uh, that was a big part of what I did. Uh, there was about three things and three things only that I did just about every single day. We had a big tree house, uh, and I would go and I had a little Red Ryder uh, single shot BB gun uh, that I would get up in that tree house and I would play war in. And, and I don't know if you were a kid and you played war, but when I played war, I was like Mel Gibson from The Patriot. Uh, that was my favorite type of war, a little bit of guns and a whole lot of hatchets and swords and machetes. Uh, I loved that. I would play that all the time. I was a, ve a very uh, violent make-believe person, if you want to just go there and check my psychology records on that one. But I also went out in the woods and I played uh, exploration. I would love to go explore and treasure hunt and, and go through the creeks and the rivers and, and do all that. I love doing that. My other thing and probably my favorite thing to do in the whole world is play basketball. That was what I did uh, the most of the time. And so during those years, you could find me a one of those three places just about every single day I was there. And even though I was playing basketball, and basketball is like a real sport, it's not make-believe. Even in my own mind, I was still playing make-believe. And the one thing 
thing, and again, now this is just me, and it may be weird, and you may have no idea what I'm talking about, but maybe you do. I would always, under every circumstances, if I was playing War in the Treehouse, I was definitely Mel Gibson's character in The Patriot. I was definitely William Wallace. I was always the general. I was always the leader. I was always the guy going out first. When I played basketball, I either was Michael Jordan or I was playing against Michael Jordan in the championship. And though it was close every single time, I always seemed to come out on top right at the last second with the buzzard beater. And though there were other great players around me, it just happened to be that I was the one that always was taking the shot. I just loved it. When I played out in the woods, uh, I always found the treasure. Uh, there, there was definitely some some moments where I had a little bit of battle loss because you don't want it to just get boring or unrealistic. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, whether I was playing war in the treehouse or playing uh, exploration in the woods or playing basketball uh, by myself, at the end of the day, I definitely always came out on top. And this is just the way that I saw life. This is just the way that you are when you're a kid and you're growing up. Uh, and the truth is, uh, the, uh, this never really leaves us. Like, if I'm honest with you, uh, the game's changed but the way that I viewed life and the way that I played pretend, uh, that, that, that part where I was always the winner, that part where I was always just, just barely, not, not, I mean, I wasn't foolish. I wasn't too unrealistic. I, I mean, I wasn't better than Michael Jordan. I just happened to play better than him that day in my mind. I just always came out on top. I was always the center of the movie. I was always uh, the main character in the story, whatever that may be. And this is kind of the way that we see ourselves in life. This is just what's natural to human nature. This is the way we process. This is the way we see things. And, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. It's just the kind of the way we are. It's the way things are. And, and the reality of it is, is that even when we come to know Jesus, even when we come to know Jesus and we put our faith in Jesus and God saves our life, we still carry this childhood pretend mindset into our later years and even into our relationships and even into our relationship with Jesus. And, and one of the flawed ways I think, and, I, and I, I used to maybe even read the Bible like this, is that, that we take that mindset uh, and we transfer it over to Scripture. We transfer that over into our relationship with God, and we don't mean it like this. It's not something that we mean is evil, wicked, foolish, or wrong. Uh, it's, just, it's just what comes natural to us. A lot of times as we go through and we start to visualize life, and we go through and we study Scripture, and we go through and we get close to God, the more that we grow uh, in Christ, uh, uh, we, we start to process things uh, a little slightly different, but we're still the main character. We're still the one that comes out on top. We're still the one the story is about. As a Christian, we kind of start to okay in our minds, you know, that God's definitely the creator of the universe. You know, Jesus is definitely the savior of the world. God's definitely the one writing the story. God's definitely the one that's in charge. But the way that we view life so often, the way that we view life so much, is that God is writing a story, and that story is about us. That that story that God's writing, he's the author of life. You know, he's the beginning and the end. He's the creator. We accept that. We get that. We love that. We believe that. We put our faith in Jesus. But as we move forward in life, we live and we operate like God is definitely the author, and he's definitely in charge. And he's definitely the one with the pencil writing the story. But in our hearts and in our minds, the story that he's writing is about us. 
in the story of our life, that story, that story is of epic importance. It's so important in our hearts and in our minds that as we go through and we study scripture and we read the scriptures and we study the stories, we start to visualize ourselves kind of in the moment and in, in the moment of the story and in each of these epic things and we visualize it and the way that we process it is how this applies to us, how this applies to the story God's writing in my life. And I think one of the flawed views of modern American Christianity is that God is writing 8 billion different stories and he's that good and he's that great that he's writing 8 billion different stories representative of each and every individual of 8 billion people walking on this earth and that that in reality is what Christianity is. That's what a relationship with God is. That's the view of reality that God is so great that he's writing 8 billion individual stories, but I want to stop really fast and just point out what I believe to be very true about reality is that God is not writing 8 billion stories. God's writing one story where he, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are the main character, and everybody else is uh, side, uh, uh, off the set of people who are a part of this other greater, grander story. It's difficult for us to process life where we aren't the main event. It's difficult for us to process life where we aren't the main character. It's difficult for us when we go through life and we look at David and Goliath to not associate with David. That when we go through uh, the characters of the Bible to not associate ourselves, not just with the greatest and the best of characters, but the greatest and the best of moments in each of those characters' lives. And I would look back on the course of my life, and I would go back and I would say one of the most foolish things that I've ever done in my life, not just to visualize the Bible and to visualize the scripture like it was all written about me and for me, and that I'm just, I've got my own story, and that the whole thing's not just about Jesus, but that, that it's about me, and, and Jesus exists on some level, right, to finish the story, my story, it's important, it's epic, it, it needs to be finished, and I'm going to have these moments as I would go through and I would read scripture and I would visualize and I would think on this level. I would go and I would think about like the David and Goliath moments like all of us do. And I would immediately, and I would associate my, I, I'm, I'm like David. That's who I need to be. That's who I'm called to be. I'm called to be out on the battlefield. I'm called to have that moment of victory. I'm called to step out in faith. I'm, I'm called, you know, and this is who God is. God is that great. God is that amazing. And he's going to uh, hand over the giants to us in our life. And, I, and I'm David, and I need to have the courage to walk out on the battlefield and, and to stand up and declare the victory is the Lord's and, and to declare what's going to happen, and God's going to hand the giant over to me. That's the way we visualize it. And you know it's true. Like, don't, don't mess around. Like, you know that's true. You know that's how you, you view life. And we, we go to moments like with Peter, you know, he's preaching the first message uh, that, that, that kind of gave birth to the church uh, after the day of Pentecost. And he goes out and he, and he starts to preach and, and proclaim and 3,000 people come to know Christ. And that was the beginning of the church. And oh, it never stopped. It, it kept going, the revolution, the movement, not even the death, uh, uh, the gates of hell and death can prevail against it. And we, we visualize those moments. I mean, I know that I do. And, and we go to people like uh, uh, Samuel, 
who, who, who had this such a unique and powerful, intimate relationship with God, and he could just hear the voice of God, and he could just know what God was doing. He was just aware, and he had power to do miracles. And, and we look at that, and we think that's, that's who we need to be. That's, that's how God's grooming us. That's how God's growing us into that. I'll be that one day. We look at somebody like Elijah. We look at somebody like Moses. We look at these stories and, 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 and we, we get to those moments, the Red Sea moment. That was, that was the thing for me for so long. It was, it was these two moments in the people of Israel. one with Moses at the Red Sea, like, I just got to trust God. And if I just trust God, God's writing the story. And whatever sees in front of me, God will split it. And it will be this great epic moment. I'll always make it over to the other side. And because I'm always the good guy, uh, the enemy behind me, the Pharaoh, the Egypt, it'll get swallowed up behind it because that's the way good stories go. I would visualize the most, probably the most, probably more than anything else in my life. I would visualize the moment that Joshua was crossing uh, the river Jordan into the land of Canaan, into the promised land for the first time. And the Lord was behind him, you know, going, just be courageous, just be strong, have no fear, don't be dismayed, just move, step forward in faith, and whatever you step on in faith, God's going to give you. And I would visualize those moments, and I would be like, that's what we need to do. That's how we need to live, and we need to go. And as I was growing up, and I was growing in Christ, I would have this moment. I was focusing on all of these things, and I'm like, I'm going to be the giant slayer. I'm going to be the one that crosses over the river into the land of Egypt. I'm going to be Peter hopping out of the boat. I'm going to be the one preaching for the 3,000. This is going to be me. I'm going to be like Paul. I'm going to have this epic moment, and I'm going to plan and all these churches, and I, and I would go through life, and I would visualize it like that. And though I feel like there is so much the Bible's clear that we learn from all of these scriptures, we learn from all of these stories, and, and we learn about the glory and the greatness of God, and we learn about the, the do's and the don'ts, and we learn wisdom, and we learn foolishness even. We, we learn, and it, it applies to us, and it affects us, and it, it teaches us about God. But I, I don't know that the right way to view scripture is to where we're the hero because we're just not. And I, and I got to a place like that years ago where I really started to realize like for certain, you know what, Jesus is the main character, I'm not. Jesus is the hero, I'm not. But it took me a few more years to realize that though I was doing it the wrong way, I was even doing the wrong thing the wrong way. Because when I would go through and I would visualize these moments, I would visualize David standing in front of Goliath. And I would try to take that and associate that to my life. And I, and I would look at the Red Sea and Joshua, and I would look at all of these things. I would always visualize the moment of victory. And I would always visualize the moment where the Red Sea parts. I would always visualize the moment where Joshua steps on the other side. And I would always visualize the moment where I'm proclaiming in faith and power of the Holy Spirit, the message of the gospel and the 3,000 were coming. I would always visualize those moments, but never once, never once did I visualize the battles leading up to those moments or the struggles leading up to those moments. You know, I, I always visualized 
David and Goliath, and I always read it, and I always studied it, and I always, you know, this, for a long time, I mean, I would, I would preach on David and Goliath about once every three to six months. And I associated with it so much, and I wanted to be that so much, and I would, but it was until later that I really started to look at, at the reality. Though it was the wrong way to view scripture, I would tell you that I was even doing the wrong way, uh, the wrong way. I was doing the wrong thing the wrong way. Because what I wasn't visualizing and was I, what I wasn't looking at was the years of rejection and obscurity in David's childhood that prepared him to stand before Goliath on that day. See, we look at the underdog story of David and we go, man, you know, God can make anybody king. God can raise anybody up. That's what God does. He's that great. He's that amazing. He's, he's writing the story and, and I'll have the Goliath moment. It'll fall before me. And I'll have that moment where, where Saul finally is dead and I'll walk in the destiny that God has for me. And, and we visualize all of these moments of victory, but nobody steps back and, and visualizes the years where his father, David's father, didn't believe in him rejected him, didn't think that he would do anything with his life, so much to the point that when Samuel came and said, bring me all your sons, I've got to anoint one of them, he invited everybody but David. See, God needed to prepare a king, his king. And God knew, knew that, that, that David uh, and whoever the king was going to be, that he couldn't be marred by human wisdom, human knowledge, human leadership, that he couldn't get stuck with this. And so David uh, needed somebody who was rejected. David needed somebody who was uh, in obscurity. David needed somebody uh, who was out in the fields alone. See, the thing that we don't process, the thing that we don't think about uh, is that it was th this moment in David's childhood, these years uh, where he lived out with the sheep, uh, rejected by his father, rejected by his brothers, seen as nobody seen as nothing. It was these years and years and years where he was out in the sheep that God got a hold of him, that he figured out and, and, and found the God of the universe and that he developed this crazy relationship. He learned how to hear the voice of God. He also learned how to battle and how to fight. God trained him in the ways of war by, by battling the wolves and the, the bears and the lions and the protecting the sheep. He learned about leadership, about how to feed and provide. He learned how to think forward. He learned how, how to know where to go and how to lead the sheep from the right and to the left and make sure that they had what they needed. Even later on in his life, uh, God said to David, the same way that you led the sheep is the way that you will lead the sheep of Israel. Uh, it, was, it was out here that David actually perfected this art of music and writing music. It was this, this thing where, and it even we found out later that David actually invented musical instruments. And there are a lot of historians that say that David may have been the first one to invent what we would see as modern string instruments. That there's a lot of what, what David brought into the world musically that did not exist prior to David. Uh, he brought it in for the temple worship of God. It was, it was out here in the field uh, for years and years and years in his childhood where he was alone and rejected in obscurity that he developed the three or four things that God used to radically change the world the older that he got. The only reason he was ready and prepared and had the courage and the confidence and the trust in God that he had when he stood before Goliath was because he had seen God deliver him from the bears and the lions time and time and time again. But when we visualize our life, and we visualize scripture and we go through our relationship with God, all we pray for, all we think about it's God handing us the giants.
We think about the, the 30 minutes of victory, but we don't visualize the 30 years of obscurity and preparation that led to that moment. We think about Moses coming humbly yet powerful before Pharaoh. That short season where God rained down miracles like the world has never seen before or after, truthfully, and destroyed Egypt and separated them and they moved out. And, and we don't process that when he was younger, he was so arrogant and so zealous and so confident in himself that he murdered a man and that he was driven out into the desert for 40 years by himself with his small family. And during that 40 years out in the desert, God humbled him and got a hold of him and taught him. And it was in his weak and humble state that he actually became powerful. We visualize the moment of power where he come and he says, Pharaoh, just let my people go. But nobody visualizes and nobody prays for, nobody meditates on and nobody considers the 40 years of training and, 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 and difficulty that Moses went through to become God who described him as the most humble person on the earth. I almost called this message, what just happened? Because as I was thinking through this, I kept thinking through the life of, of Joseph. Joseph was Isaac's baby boy. Uh, he was some called the dreamer. And God gave him these, these two dreams when he was a kid. And it basically, God basically told him, he said, at some point in your life, everybody, everybody, all your brothers and your father, they're going to bow down and they're going to serve you. You're going to be above them. And foolishly, uh, he told everybody about that. And that definitely created some discord and some hatred. So much so that they, they sold, uh, they tried to kill him. They wanted to kill him. His oldest brother was like, no, let's not kill him. Uh, and then they instead sold him into slavery and told his father that he'd been eaten by a wild animal. And he went to Egypt and was sold into slavery and he did his best, but even there he was done wrong in a crazy way and he was thrown into prison unjustly. And there he did the best he could and he served God and he remained faithful. But there he was done wrong and he was forgotten and for years and years and years went by. And then finally one day, uh, because of some things God had been developing in his life, Pharaoh uh, says, hey, listen, bring that boy up that you told me about. I'm going to tell him the dream if you can tell me. Eventually he comes up and he becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. And I was thinking about this because in hindsight, when you look at the end of Joseph's life, and Joseph too, when he was older, he looked back and he recited it all. And he said the famous scripture, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But the truth is, and the reality of it is, is that, that though Joseph could see that at the end, looking back, there's no way, I don't believe it. I think that he loved God, he trusted God. But there's no way that he knew in the moment when he was sitting in the pit and he got out and his brothers sold him into slavery and they put chains on him and he started to walk for days and days and days to Egypt that he wasn't just walking going like, what just happened? God gave me these dreams, told me all my brothers and my father would bow down to me, that I would lead them, that I would be over them. And now here I am walking chained to slave traders, going to Egypt, the enemy's house. Like, what just happened? The thing is, is that as I started to pray through this and process this, 
The Lord put something in my heart, and you ought to write this down. It will help us in life many, many times. It was God's destiny for Joseph that created the difficulty. And the difficulty is actually what paved the way for God's destiny to come true. God spoke to Joseph and let him know, in the end, you're going to be a leader over all your brothers and your father. And it was this will of God, it was this, this uh, word of God, this revelation of God, it was this moment of God that actually created all of the hostility and all the hatred and all the difficulty. And then it was the difficulty that actually paved the way for Joseph to wind up becoming the second most powerful man in the known world. Only to Pharaoh himself. And at the end of the story, you can see it. At the end of the story, you can see that God didn't just save the people of Israel. And he didn't just save Egypt. There was seven years of famine. God saved the whole known world in that moment. God saved the whole known world. It said that, that, that Egypt, because of, of the way God moved through Joseph and Joseph's wisdom and what God spoke to Joseph about what to do and how to handle the famine, that they had seven years of good and they stored up all this food and then they had seven years of famine and everybody, every nation around would have all died and starved to death, including God's people, people of Israel. But now Egypt had all this food and there was enough food to sustain and save the people of Israel, the people of Egypt and all the surrounding nations also came and bought food and traded for the food. God saved the whole known world through Joseph but the, the, the way that God got him to that place and to that position was through rejection, hatred, wrongdoing, difficulty, betrayal, suffering, wrongful imprisonment. There was these years of this crazy, crazy difficulty. But in the end, it made sense, but not in the middle, it didn't. And I want to spend just a minute, and I want to talk to us about the reality of life. Because though I do not believe that there are 8 billion stories, I think there is one story, and it is about the majesty, the glory, and the Son of Jesus Christ, and the Father, the creator of the universe. And that we are all a part of the story of Jesus. I think there is one story, and generation after generation of, of extra characters involved in the glory, and the power, and the majesty of Jesus but that God is in fact leading us and that, that our trust in him, that he cares for us as individuals and that he is laying out our life and he is directing our steps and he's establishing our thoughts and he's bending our hearts and he's leading the way. But I do believe one of the reasons that so many people miss out on their opportunity not to have a David and Goliath moment, but to have a moment where God uses them in such a spectacular way is because we spend most of our Christian lives looking for that moment when the vast majority of our Christian's life, true Christian's lives, will be in the field with the sheep, will be our hands cuffed, enslaved, wrongfully imprisoned, locked out of society in the desert like Moses, uh, experiencing incredible defeat and anguish and being taken to a foreign land like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And like all the disciples having to walk away from everything they knew and loved about life and then eventually 
dying truly, suffering, beaten, and dying for their faith. We don't know what to do, especially in modern America. We don't know what to do in moments of difficulty. We don't know what to do when life doesn't work out like the way we visualize it. God, we don't, we don't know what to do. We stepped out in faith and Goliath just knocked our heads off. I just stepped out in faith and my brother sold me into slavery. I was on my way. And the Romans just arrested me and threw me in prison and beat me to death. We don't know how to process this. And because modern American, now listen to me, because modern American church people don't know how to process a world where every day isn't a David and Goliath moment, we may be the weakest Christian society since the cross of Jesus Christ. Because difficulty is a part of the Christian life. Suffering, being humbled in the desert, it's a part of the Christian life. There will be David and Goliath moments, but they will be scattered throughout a life of walking through training, preparation, and difficulty. And because we don't understand that, because we don't believe that, we aren't prepared fully for what God wants to do in our life. But this is the problem, and this is why I believe the Lord wants to deliver this message today in this moment leading into this next season of our country and our society, is that just because we're not ready doesn't mean God's not going to keep moving. And I want to I tell you two stories from Scripture. The first is I want to tell you Job. You know, I've heard Job preached on a lot but if I go through and I start to recall the moments of Job that I've heard preached, the vast majority of them, they always go to that last chapter of Job where it says that uh, God uh, blessed the latter years of Job greater than the former. He doubled him everything. He doubled his wealth. He doubled his children. He doubled his honor. He doubled his glory. He doubled him. His latter will be greater than the former. Hallelujah. Amen. Not only is that the smallest chapter of the whole book, in the last chapter of the whole book, there's 40-something chapters before it of nothing but the worst suffering any human except maybe Jesus Christ ever went through. That everything was stripped from Job. That his children were crushed under the weight of a falling wall. That his wealth was all taken in a day that everything he knew and loved was murdered or destroyed or taken from him. And the few people that could even call him friend seemed to hate him, except for one. And through it all, the Bible says that he never once cursed God, that he never once said to God that God wasn't good, that God was wrong for this, and he never once, he never once sinned in this way. But he did sin. He did sin. In the way that he sinned, I think, is of paramount importance to our life. To understand the way that he sinned and to understand the direction that he took. Because all throughout the scripture, uh, and even the Bible verified, even God verified out of his own language early on that, that, Mo, that, that Job was, was a, a man of righteousness like, like, not, like no one had ever really seen. I mean, God was even bragging on him to Satan. Like, look at my, look at my servant Job, man. He's, he's crushing it. 
But by the end of it, God did come and God brought one thing against Job. And you can see the sin in Job's confession and repentance of it. In the last few chapters, I think 42, I think Job 42. And Job comes and he confesses to the Lord and he says, you're right, God. I spoke of things too great for me to understand. I took an opinion about you and I spoke against God, accused him of darkening his counsel with words without knowledge. And what that meant was that, that as Job was going through this process, and, and the thing that we really don't know is if Job sinned prior or if it was during the middle of all the suffering, we really don't know. But what the sin was that Job committed was, was whether before or after, there was something about God's ways that Job did not understand. He did not understand the reasoning behind what God chose to do, whatever that may have been. More than likely, it was the suffering. But Job did not just not understand what God was doing. He so did not understand that he took his, his, his lack of understanding, his, his ignorance of God's ways, and he used that as an excuse to justify not fully trusting God in those moments. And God's response to him was, he goes, who is this that darkens my counsel without words of knowledge? One sentence. And then he goes on for two chapters, long chapters. And he describes the vastness of this ever-extending universe that we live in. And God's point to Job was, you don't even know how to explain the things that you see. Why on earth do you think you are capable of understanding the things that you don't see? And who are you to question me? Who are you to use your lack of understanding of who I am and my greatness as an excuse not to trust me and to fully submit to me in your heart. And though Job had been accused of all of his friends had accused him over and over and over again of sinning in all these other ways, Job said, I've never sinned like that, and he hadn't. But God brought the true sin to his forefront, and he confessed it. His sin was, I don't understand what is happening. I don't understand why God's going this way. I don't understand why God's going this direction. I don't understand it. And because I don't understand it, I'm choosing not to trust it. <clears throat> I'm choosing not to trust this because I don't understand it. This is actually one of the most heinous sins the human mind can commit because it's going gonna, it's gonna to stop us from ever being able to go through and follow God into the great destiny that he has for us because we will never fully understand why God does what he does. And that's the story number one. And I'm going to take you to the second one. And this is in the scripture I told you to go to. It's Mark 14, 35. And this is Jesus talking. This is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. This is Jesus Pouring his soul, his heart, his mind, the fullness of who he was out before God. It said that he was so stressed in this moment that he sweat blood. 
that the anxiety was so heavy on him of what he was about to go through when he knew what he was about to go through. And so he goes to God in prayer. And he, he bows down in the garden and he begins to pray. And in Mark 14, 35, he says, Abba, which means Father. Abba. Anything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He said, Abba, you know, Father, he's acknowledging two things, if not more. He's acknowledging this intimate relationship he has with his father. Father, you're my father. You view me like a good father. I'm your son, and you care for me, and you love me, and you know what's best for me. And I'm your son, and I submit to you, and I trust you. He says, Abba, Father. And he says, anything is possible for you. I know this to be true. This is Jesus talking. I know, I know the plan. I know what's about to happen to me. I know what's, what's going to happen. I, I, I know the suffering. I know the struggle. I know the pain. I, I know the torture, the humiliation. I know what I'm about to go through. Father, I know that anything is possible for you. What Jesus is saying is, I know there's a, there is a different option than this one. God, you can do anything you want, any way you want. And I hesitate to say this, but it's almost like Jesus is saying just a little bit. We could go so many different directions. I'm not fully understanding why this one. So much so that he goes, I know everything is possible for you, so take this cup from me. In that culture, the cup meant your lot in life, the things you go through, what happens. And Jesus was literally asking him, Father, anything is possible for you. There is another way. You can do this any way you want to do this, so take this cup from me. Don't let me go through this moment. Don't let it be like this. Don't let it be this way. I don't want to suffer like this. Yet, not my will, but your will. In many ways, Job and Jesus had the same initial difficulty. Though Job may have been closest to the most perfect uh, human that ever lived, he wasn't perfect. Jesus was. And the one sin recorded of Job, though I'm sure there may have been more, the one sin that we know of in Job's life was that he also knew all things were possible. And he didn't fully understand why everything was happening. But in his heart and in his mind, instead of saying, your will, not mine, he said, my will. I don't understand this. So I'm calling into question who you are. I don't understand the path you chose for me. I don't understand the cancer you gave me. I don't understand why I lost the child. I don't understand I don't understand the childhood that I went through. 
I don't understand the way that I suffered. I don't understand what's in front. I don't understand why this country is going through what it's going. I don't understand why all these evil people are running the world. I don't understand the direction. I don't understand what you're doing. If you're this great God, if you're this holy, if, if everything is possible for you, then why don't you get up off the throne and do something about it? If you're the God of revival, why don't you bring revival? If you're the God of salvation, why don't you save some of these wicked people that are destroying the world around us? If you're the God who hears the innocent who call, don't you hear all these innocent children lost in sex trafficking? I'm sure they're calling out to somebody. If you're God and everything is possible for you, then why, why the suffering, why the difficulty, why this way? And I want to be very clear here. Job wasn't doubting God's existence. Job believed, like Jesus, everything is possible for you. And I don't understand why you're letting it go this way. So he called into doubt the goodness of God. And he chose not to trust him fully, using the lack of understanding his ignorance of God as an excuse to say there might be a better way. Verses where Jesus said, Abba, Father, this whole thing's about you. This vast universe, this extending universe that's too great for the human mind to even comprehend. Every dust out in space all the way down to every soul on earth that's ever lived throughout history, all of this is for you. All of this is about you. All of this, this is your story. And you're my father. And I know, I know that you know what's best for me. And I know also that anything is possible for you. And so I'm asking you because of he's being vulnerable, he's being honest, yet this is not sinful. Take this cup from me. I don't want to suffer in this way. I don't want to go through this difficulty. I don't want it to be this way. But at the end of it, not my will, but your will. And then Jesus got up from the garden. He was arrested. And he was innocent, but he was found guilty. And he went like a, a lamb to the slaughter, never once defending himself silently. He was beaten. His flesh just ripped from his skin. Crown of thorns pierced in the depths of his head into his skull. Blood and tears flowed. And they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. And they lifted him up. And as he hung dying, they made fun of him. And they treated him like a slave, like a 
wicked sinner. And eventually, because he had the authority to do so, he laid down his life. See, we think about the empty grave. That's the greatest thing in Christianity. The empty grave. It was the conqueror of death. It was God's supreme victory over what Job described as the king of terror death. And everybody focuses on that. But the only reason an empty grave was possible was because a perfect Savior had to die and suffer in the most heinous way. We live in a world right now where we have a lot of American religious people. Not as many are real Christians like they think they are. And we have a group of people where we, we want the empty grave and the victory over death. But we don't want the suffering of the cross. We want the David and Goliath. But we don't want the obscurity with the sheep. We want to be the prince of Egypt like Joseph, but we don't want the prison that developed us. We want to be humble and powerful like Moses, but we don't want the 40 years in the desert alone. We want to make a difference and pave the way like John the Baptist, but we don't want to spend 99% of our life in the woods alone with God to do ministry for six months and then get our heads chopped off. You know, we want to be out there with Peter and preach to the 3,000, but we don't want to walk through the three years of Jesus through his truth, his power, crushing every ounce of who Simon was so that Peter could live. You know, we want the victory, we just don't want the battle. But it was the cross that paved the way for the empty grave and made grace possible and salvation possible. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of the church. There's a reason why in the promise, and I used, I used to, man, I used to quote this. This was, my, this was my battle cry for years. Jesus said, I'm the one that builds the church and not even the gates of death will prevail. And it only recently occurred to me that he may have had to make the promise, not even death will prevail because we would all be facing a lot of death. And at the end of it all, I don't know what's to come in the near future or the far future in totality. No one does. Only God knows. But one thing that we know for sure is that we will walk through difficulty in this life. And if God is moving, and if God is the one really writing the story of your life, then your story is a part of that of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is definitely a story of victory, but it is a story of suffering and difficulty. And I believe that the Lord wants to give us great victory in this life. I believe that the Lord will deliver and bring great victory, revival. 
I believe it, that he will save and continue to save thousands and millions of people. I believe that the church is strong. I believe the promise of Jesus. And I have nothing to fear about what's to come. But I know that what's to come will have seasons of extreme difficulty in our lives as he shapes us, as he disciplines us, as he humbles us, as he prepares us. And we will be forced, all of us, having that moment, and we will have to decide in our heart and our mind, like Job, will we sin in that moment? I don't understand. And so because I don't understand, I call into question, and I choose not to trust you fully and completely. Or will we be like Jesus? Abba, Father, anything is possible for you. I don't want to suffer. And if it's possible, take this cup. But ultimately, I trust you. Not my will, but your will. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting David and Goliath moments. I still want them. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting Joshua crossing the river moments. I don't think there's anything believing that God can still tear down walls and kill giants in our life. I don't think there's anything wrong with believing that. But we have to believe the battle and the suffering part too. And it will make us stronger and it will prepare us. And we will walk in victory in this life. There's an old song, and I'll close with this. I don't even know who sings it. It's an old Southern gospel group. I haven't listened to hardly any of them ever in my whole life. I don't like most of them. There was this one song, and I don't even remember what it was fully in, but there was one line that I have never, ever forgotten. And it went something like this. It said that God promises victory, but he never promises victory without a fight. I believe that God wants to do great and mighty things in our lives and with his church this very day. But we have to trust him in those supreme moments of difficulty. And we can pray and we cannot understand and there's nothing wrong with that and we can even pray, don't let us suffer. But what we can't do is get up from our garden with any other mentality than your will be done. Let's pray. Father God, I pray, Lord, right now that you would just let your spirit and your presence just rest in the depth of our souls. I pray, Lord God, right now that you will prepare your church, God, for the future. That you will prepare us even now, Father God, in the obscurity. Father, with the sheep in the prisons. Father, while we're being done wrong, God, the difficulty, whatever it is, being humbled in the desert, whatever season we're in, Father God. Lord, that you will prepare our hearts in these moments, Father. That we will fall in love with you and therefore fall in love with your ways, even though we may not fully understand them all. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will give us the strength and the courage to, in those moments, pray the prayer of Jesus Christ. Not my will, your will. In your holy name, amen.